Well, hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. Lisa Anderson here with you. And as always, a little preview of what is coming up later in the show. For our inbox, we have a girl who wants to know what the differences are between compromising, yielding, and resolving conflict in a relationship. So especially as she has this conversation with her boyfriend, who is kind of like, uh leading into marriage, she has some concerns about what that looks like for each of them. So uh, counselor M.T. Wilson is going to address her questions. And then for our culture segment, Pastor Dean and Sarah is here uh, about his new book called Pure, which is about God's plan for sexuality and specifically coming off of an era of purity culture, the good and the bad. Uh, what are the myths that need to be debunked about sex and what does that mean for your life. So that is a great conversation we will have in just a few minutes. But here we are for our roundtable, and we thought we would have a conversation around what waiting on God looks like, because we hear about this a lot. I feel like maybe 12 times a day, uh, we Mm -hmm. get an email in the Boundless Inbox about like, how do I know God's will? What does it look like? I asked God for this, and he didn't give me this, and what am I going to do? And what if I turn 25, and God still hasn't answered XYZ prayer requests? So there's a lot of questions around that, and uh, certainly we want to give some encouragement. And so we have got several guests here today. We have John and Georgia. Hey, y'all. Hey. Hey, Lisa. I said y'all for your sake. John. Thank you. It makes me that. feel right at home. <laughs> that <laughs> is excellent. Um, and then also Pastor Mark Bates is here. Hey, Mark. Hello, Lisa. Good to be here. Good to have you here uh, to talk about this concept of waiting on God and how we can apply it and hopefully get some encouragement um, in this space. And so if I were to ask you all, and as you have conversations with friends and, and whatnot, what would you say waiting on God means? Like define that for your everyday life. John, why don't you start? So I actually wrote down this definition this morning, and I wrote down waiting on God as a period of time where you learn to trust God even when it's not easy. Hmm. And typically it's also a period of time where maybe you're waiting on say a certain blessing or you're waiting on something to change in your life. But if we're being a little honest, God needs to work on our character just a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I know even from personal experience that the times where I was in a season of waiting was actually a time where I needed to do some self-reflection and realized, hey, God is actually trying to mold me and shape me into the person he wants me to be Mm -hmm. before I step into the next season he's called me to. Yeah, which is so interesting because I think the way I apply it sometimes is like I'm waiting for God to work on his character. <laughs> because I, I tell him, okay, God, I'm giving you two months. Two months is plenty of time for you to work this out and give me an answer or do whatever. And so won't you just show up? What's happening? So yeah, it's a good reminder that you know we're not in the driver's seat on that. Georgia, how about you? Yeah, that's a good point. I think I also hesitate when saying, oh, I'm waiting on the Lord, because to me, it makes me think like, oh, I'm waiting for him to come to the dinner plans we had, and he's late. Like, <laughs> he's just twiddling his thumbs, getting ready. And I'm like, no, like, our God is doing and working and moving, even when we don't see it. So I think waiting on the Lord, to me, is being reminded that even though I don't see it right now, he is doing something and he's working on something that is better than I could even fathom. And so, yeah, I, I'm always like hesitant to be like, huh, I'm waiting on God because it's like 
Yeah, it makes it sound like you're at Brahms and he's late and you're licking your ice cream and it's melting. (laughs) But that's not it. He's working and doing something important. And so I think just being reminded that in the grand scheme of things, God has so many things in the works and the weaving of, of what he's doing. And so, yeah, I think waiting is more so just being reminded that he's got this and he has way better plans than what I have. Yeah. All right, Mark, you're the pastor here, so <laughs> you give us the definitive yes, the, the, answer. The definitive answer. Then, Let me correct then you Then we all. can just be done with yeah, this whole yeah, conversation. Yeah. So. No, I, I love the answers, because I think, you know, waiting is an act of faith. But in that, that thing I would add, it's also an acknowledgement that things are not the way they ought to be. Mm-hmm. That we live in a world that is broken. We live in a world that's uh, full of hurt and heartache. In fact, all of us as Christians are waiting for God to make all things new. And mm-hmm. there's this sense of longing. So this idea that you're hurting or things are incomplete or things are broken and, and you long for it to be better is not wrong. Uh, in fact, that's, that's good and holy. Uh, and so, uh, so acknowledging the pain, acknowledging the brokenness, just like we see throughout the Psalms, the word wait shows up a bunch. Mm-hmm. And it's an acknowledgement that things are not right and we're longing for that day that God will make it right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about what are some of the things that we feel we're waiting on often. Because I think, Georgia, as you were talking, I was thinking, to myself, well, you know, the one person who's not really waiting is God. I mean, God <laughs> pretty much knows like what's up and what the plan is and whatever. But we act like, you know, we we are waiting because we don't have a complete mm-hmm. picture, the picture that, that God himself does. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he can have the perfect amount of chill uh, in any situation. <laughs> but meanwhile, we have to trust and have to walk forward sometimes with just that one step at a time. That's all we have. So what are some areas of life where you in particular have had to walk this out. I definitely had to do this right after college because I remember senior year, I applied to so many jobs. It felt like as if that last half of the last semester, I was going to class, maybe spending a little bit of time with my friends and then applying for jobs. Mm -hmm. And one door after another kept closing, even into the summer. Mm -hmm. It was just relentless to a point that I got extremely discouraged. And I actually had a friend who was a neighbor pull me aside, and he brought me into his home. And he actually had not even heard my story, but he was a man of deep prayer and still is. I, I love this guy. But I remember he brought me into his home, and he said, I just want really feel like the Lord wants me to share with you that um, don't allow discouragement to keep you from what God has next. Mm-hmm. And man, that conversation absolutely changed my life because he was so spot on in what he was sharing about my situation. And he didn't even know my story. And it was a beautiful reminder that, hey, God, God knew what was next, even though I didn't before I got the job that I have now at Focus. He said something as well that really landed with me that was, do you, he asked me the direct question, do you really want God's best for your life mm-hmm. in regards to your career? And I said, yes. And he mm-hmm. said, getting to the destination is rarely going to be traveled. When you're really waiting on God, it's rarely going to be traveled on smooth waters. Mm-hmm. But when you get to the other side, you're going to say it was worth it. Mm-hmm. And without his encouragement, I don't think I would have made it through that season like I did. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's great. Yeah, kind of similar. I will say I think post-grad or being a young professional is just kind of a weird time because 
you think that you're all going to take the same ship to the same destination, and then right after college, everybody gets on a different sailboat, and you're like, all of a sudden, oh, okay, so we're not going west together? Weird. Okay. Um, and that happened to me. I started applying for jobs, I remember, in like June of 2021. And I applied for jobs all the way up until May of 2022. So I, or no, 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 it's 2022 now. So whatever, the, whatever the, <laughs> that time period was. All that to say, I had been applying from the beginning of my senior year to the end of it. And I had applied probably upwards of 70 jobs. I was on LinkedIn. Y'all know the grind. And it was tough. <laughs> and I kept getting all these no's and no's. And I just wanted to go to California. I wanted to be in the film industry. Um, and I just got all these no's. And I was like, okay, well, this is exhausting. Um, awesome, God. So nothing, nothing going to happen here. Cool. And then I went to camp and I really just prayed. And I was like, okay, God, I'm going to take a rest from this job hunt. And I'm going to see what you have for me at camp. And I just, you know, really dug into that. And the whole time I was just, you know, kind of worried and anxious for the last week of camp because I was like, after that, I don't have anything to go to. Like, I'm not going to school. I'm not going to a job. I'm not going to an internship. Like, after camp, I'm going home to live with my parents. And I was like, that is kind of scary because I think post-grad, there's a lot of pressure. But it was just one of those things where I was like, okay, well, Lord, if you're going to take me home, I'll go home if that's where you want me to go. Um, and it just worked out to where I became a substitute teacher um, through a man that I had nannied. Uh, he was he worked for the school system in my hometown, and he had called me up, and I was literally did not have a job. He called me up a week after I got home and was like, we need subs. Do you want a sub? Interviewed, became a substitute teacher. And then I applied for a job at Focus because a friend of mine worked at Focus and was like, you should just apply. And it all worked out perfectly all the while, I was just like, God, like, I'm not a teacher. That was not my degree. I was like, God, I applied for Focus on the Family. I'll be I'll be completely honest. Didn't know what it was. I was like, this is brand new to me. Okay. And I applied for all these things. And then lo and behold, I got to minister to the kids in my class. And that was really cool because I got to see a lot of life change, even in the two months that I was there. And then I got the job at Focus. And I was able to leave right when the nine weeks ended. And so it was kind of a perfect transition for their new sub to come in. Um, so it just all worked out and it worked out way better than I had planned. Um, but I did, I, it felt like a horrible waiting season, but really now looking back and it was only 10 months ago, looking back, I'm like, oh, that's so awesome. Like mm -hmm. God had it so much better than I had. And if I had had a job, I wouldn't have met those kids in my class and I wouldn't have been able to minister to them and I wouldn't have come here. And so it just all worked out. And I know that that's a big struggle for postgrads that they think if I don't have a job in May, then I'm a failure. But that's not the truth. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because you talked about like, and that was 10 months ago. And I feel like my own story on the job front was like, really, I mean, you guys have heard me say this on Boundless before, like kind of 10 years <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, a lot yeah. of people will say like, okay, you know, I can hang in there for two months or five months or mm -hmm. 10 months, but I really went back and forth. And I feel like there was this season of, um, or we, we tend to make it out to be the in-between times are just wasted time. We, mm -hmm. we think mm -hmm. we're going from destination to destination and everything else is just filler 
but sometimes God, I think, will use, you know, it's not, it, it's not just dead air. It's not like God saying, no, you know, all of these portions of your life are just wasted or, or whatever. Um, I don't know. I mean, I mean, Mark, I would love to get your yeah. thoughts on, I, I think even in Christian culture and even in churches today, we, we see so much about like, you know, oh, there are leadership seminars and all this, like, you know, take, find God's will and mm-hmm. maximize your impact and all this kind right. of stuff. And it kind of sets people up to think that if they're not doing something amazing, they're not doing anything. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think there is a um, way under appreciation for the ordinary mm-hmm. and, and that uh, so much of the Christian life is ordinary. And just the the whole idea of, of waiting, you think about David in the Psalms. He's told by God as a very young man, maybe a teenager, uh, that he's going to be king. It's years. Mm-hmm. It's years in caves. It's years fleeing for his life. It's not months. You know, it's a, it's a long time. And that's why, you know, I'm sure that's part of why he was like, you know, where are you in uh, waiting? And so... I think a lot of times we are. We're looking for that spectacular uh, thing uh, that for God to do. But the the question is, what are we waiting on him to do? Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think for us, we're waiting for him to do what he's promised to do. And oftentimes we put things into that category while I'm waiting for God to provide me with that, that killer job that I'm going to have that global impact. Uh, well, I can't find that verse in the Bible where he's promised that to you. <laughs> uh, and, or that he's waiting for a spouse or people are waiting for a child or people are waiting for what, whatever it may be. And so the question is, are we waiting for God to do what we want or are we waiting for him to do what he promises? And here's where it goes back to, you know, do we trust God's wisdom more than we trust our own? And, and I'll just say, I, God and I have conversations all the time about the way I think he ought to do things. He and I <laughs> frequently have disagreements. And, uh, and you think about that. I mean, I'm, we all do, right? Uh, the sheer arrogance of that. Mm. Because God, uh, we know, is all-knowing. Mm-hmm. He's all-wise. And he adores you. And yet, I'm thinking, God, you're not handling this right at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can think of specific instances where I'm looking I go... I just wouldn't have done it that way. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yet, if I really believe that he is God and that he loves me, then waiting is that patience that he's going to do what he's promised to do, not what I think he ought to do. We don't want God limited by my wisdom. That would be tragic. Mm-hmm. Well, and doesn't it seem, I mean, I think that's so often because we equate the right decision with whatever is going to bring about the most ease and the most comfort. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, clearly God's going to be behind what is going to make my life easy or what's going to be, you know, and sometimes Mm -hmm. it's just like, no, this is Mm -hmm. like in my wisdom, the worst outcome possible, but trusting that God is doing something in that is absolutely um, where that is. So, okay, well, what do you guys do when it, how do you reconcile yourselves to waiting on God, but also taking action? Because again, we can't just sit around, Mm -hmm. we can't be like, you know, okay, well, you know, God is God. And so what I need to do is just sit with a bag of Cheetos and (laughs) wait for him to shove me off the couch. Okay. So what, what does faithfulness look like in an everyday walk in any of these areas of life? I wrote down this verse from Psalm 37. It says that a step, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And to reiterate what you just said, it does not say the sitting in front of the television for six hours a day is ordered by the Lord. It says the steps of a good man. I think man that's are a newer version, John. You just yeah. haven't looked at it yet. Okay. I mean, that's yeah. A, okay. <laughs> but 
to go back a little bit on my story, part of what helped me kind of come out of that season of really deep despair is I actually was able to take two part-time jobs while I was waiting for a full-time one. Mm -hmm. And it was something that just got me out of the house. It gave me a reason to do stuff beyond just hoping for somebody to call me back to a job I had applied for. And what was amazing is I was able to make some beautiful memories with my family because I was working with my dad. I was also doing some sports announcing at the time. So I was able to make great memories with my father and with um, some friends. Mm -hmm. And just taking those very simple steps, it, it was an opportunity that was right in front of me helped so, so much. Mm -hmm. So I definitely would not recommend just sitting around hoping, (laughs) waiting for things to change because most likely they're not going to. And back to the point of character development, how is our character developed when we're just sitting around Mm -hmm. not doing something? Mm -hmm. Our character is developed when we're actually pushing ourselves to grow and being willing to say, okay, I'm going to take a step even though I don't know what's coming up next. Mm Mm-hmm. I It makes me think of this book called Hind's Feet on High Places. I don't know if you've heard of it, but if you haven't, you should read it. Um, and the main character is named Much Afraid. And the biggest thing is that she lives in this town where everybody, you know, makes fun of her because she's lame and uh, they, they make fun of her and they don't, she doesn't fit in. And God, the good shepherd in the, in the book, says, I want to take you to high places. But first... You need to walk through the valleys and the the oceans and all of these things. And the whole time she's like, well, why can't you just take me to the high places? Why can't you take me there right now? And he's like, well, because I'm working on you. I need, there's things that you have to grow in. I'm trying to bind up those feet to make you strong so that when you go to high places, you can dance with me and all those things. And so, yeah, I, I think that's the point of waiting in a sense is that you know, you don't just get to sit around and twiddle your thumbs. You have to actually put in the work. And whether that is prayer or whether that is by working or whether that is going out and meeting people, if you're, you know, looking for a spouse, I think that's a funny one where a lot of times the ladies are like, I just don't know where all the nice men are. And I'm like, but have you talked to like any of the men at your church? And they're like, no. I'm like, well, <laughs> that's your problem. That's your problem, girl. Girly pop, you got to go talk to them. Um, so I think that's the thing. Like if you're waiting on certain things, but you're just sitting at your home and not participating in the things that you want to see change in, um, then they're not going to happen. And that doesn't mean uh, that the Lord doesn't just give blessings, but I think that we get to be a part of them as well, not because we are good or worthy or able to make those things happen, Mm -hmm. but because our God has invited us into the story through our Savior, Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think there's an importance of working and being prepared for what's next, um, for what he has us for. So that's what it kind of made me think of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I think being faithful where you are is a huge part of it. And so uh, the Bible uh, does not commend laziness ever mm-hmm. and there's a diligence there you're, you're, and so what does it mean to be faithful in this particular context of this particular moment but also if you feel like god has given you a burden for a particular calling or, or something like you said there are active steps you could be taking as far as improving yourself and being ready for that day when the opportunity does come you know so you know i'm sure for you lisa you know during those 10 years you're waiting there are certain skills you're improving on over time and um and so you know, if you feel like God's calling you to do a particular thing, well, begin working on those skills, begin testing them out, uh, begin pursuing those opportunities. But you can do it. Here's the cool thing is you can do it without fear of failure to some degree in this mm-hmm. sense. 
that if you're pursuing it and you're doing it to the glory of God and you fail, what have you lost? Mm -hmm. I think we're so afraid of failing that Mm -hmm. we don't try. And so try. What's the worst that can happen? God's still going to love you the next day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how can we help like start re-scripting this like in our in our communities, in our friend circles and whatever, where I think too often we're taking a script from whether it's the culture or what we've been told, like, for example, you know, marriage, you know, for the young adults who are listening, who are like, oh, I wish I were dating. I wish I could be married. And they're thinking like okay, well, you know, my friends, by 25, we've all decided we better be married or we're behind or we're whatever, you know, when when the world has kind of scripted out the assumptive processes or what Mm -hmm. you should be doing by now, or yeah, I shouldn't be just in this job, or my friend has three gigs on the side, or my friend's now in management and they're only 28, you know, how do you guys reconcile yourselves to trusting in the midst of the comparison game Mm -hmm. in the culture? So it's funny you bring up the relationship question. I am probably, as of right now, because I'm not dating anybody, I probably get that question from people who mean really well, um, but I, I probably about once a week I'm getting that question <laughs> That's exhausting. In, in some way, wow. shape, or form. Oh. I even went to a family event earlier this summer, and it was a wonderful event, but I got the question at least three times during the event, Mm. during that afternoon. Mm -hmm. Are you dating somebody or (laughs) things like that? And these were people I had not seen in a while. And so no harm, no foul. But I remember just kind of being at the end of that day, just being a little tired in my soul, thinking, man, I'm at the time of this recording, I'm 27, almost 28, and still feel like I'm waiting on God in that area. And the answer literally came to me this morning. Hmm. because I have the YouVersion Bible app on my phone, and it sends me a verse of the day. And the verse of the day happened to be Psalm 119, 114. It says, You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Hmm. And at the end of the day, regardless of what I'm waiting on, I can always run to the Lord. Mm -hmm. He will always be there for me. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. And regardless of what people ask me about with my relationship status or my career— or anything along those lines, he does not change, and his presence will always be there to sustain me. And that is a hope that I can run to, even in the moments when I feel discouraged. Mm, That's good. Yeah. I think a lot of times we assume um, that we're promised certain things, and not to like steal your thunder with that joke of like, Mm -hmm. where does it in the Bible say that? But I'm like, nowhere in the Bible does it say that God promised Georgia a a great, awesome husband who is really cute and likes to hike. Like no, nowhere in the Bible does it say that. Um, It also doesn't promise that Georgia is always going to be happy and have a great time and uh, enjoy her job and going to make this amount of money. Like it never promised any of that, but what it did promise is that I'm going to be able to follow my savior and that I'm going to be able to share the gospel because that's what he's called me to. So I think just being reminded of the fact that, like, he has good promises, and those promises will be kept. Um, But that doesn't always mean that, I think, in the Christian culture, things like, you know, having a a husband or a wife or having kids, I think those are, like, really big topics Mm -hmm. in the Christian sphere where it's like, we have to have those things. And I'm like, but I'm not promised those things. Mm -hmm. I'm promised a place in heaven because Jesus has died for my sake and for the sake of others. But he didn't promise that he promised that I would walk the narrow road with him and that, that I can 
I can hold to. All that to say, I also think a big thing is don't should on yourself because I think when we say I should this or I should that, that's when we get into this you know, kind of despair of like, oh, I should have all these things or I should be where these people are. But again, your journey is different. Um, God has called each of us to a different purpose and a different journey. And I think that's okay. And I think it's just reminding yourself that you can be in a different leg of the race that you're on and that's okay. But when you start to should on yourself, then it's like, okay, well, I feel bad that I don't have two kids yet and I'm this age, or I feel bad that I'm not 10 years into my career that I set into, you know, um, just being reminded that don't, don't use the word should because that makes it feel like you are a failure and you haven't accomplished anything. But the biggest accomplishment is that Christ has made you new. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, Mark, any last encouragement yeah. as we <laughs> wrap yeah, it here for no, the person that's, who's... that's good. I, I agree with that. And I, I just add that, it's still okay to lament that you don't have those things. If you're single and you're longing to be married and you're not, and there are two ways I could say, well, God never promised you you'd be married. Well, get over it. Suck it up, buttercup. You know, that'd be one way. Uh, that's probably not appropriate. Uh, and, and because that longing is, is a good and honorable longing. And so I don't want someone to feel shame for having that longing uh, for that because it, it is a good thing. At the same time, that's where... This is where waiting really comes in, and you see it again, again, the Psalms is saying, okay, Lord, I'm waiting, which means I'm trusting you to provide in the way that you see is best. But right now, waiting is a hard thing, and so just acknowledge that it's hard, but keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys so much for this conversation. Super great. Thanks, Lisa. I don't care where you are, as long as you're breathing. I'm my brother, me, Kasa, Sukasa, my mama, your mama. We all two dashes. I call that equal. White or brown skin. Is- We are here for this week's culture segment, and uh, I have got Dean and Sarah on the line here uh, to join us for a conversation around the topic of sexuality. And, you know, some of you are maybe newer to the show and you're like, hey, I thought this show is for mostly single young adults. We shouldn't be talking about sex (laughs) and sexuality, but uh, we will. You know what? Uh, Dean actually wrote a book that is titled Pure, Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality Isn't Outdated, Irrelevant, or Oppressive. And Dean, welcome to The Boundless Show. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for having me on as a guest. I appreciate it. Well, this is really good. And we're going to, Dean, in addition to being a pastor and a speaker and an author, obviously, uh, talked uh, here about his book a little bit, and we'll be learning a little bit more of some of the themes of that. Um, Currently pursuing a doctorate in ministry from Southern Seminary and uh, as a lead pastor of City Church in Tallahassee, Florida. He is married to Chrissy, and they have three kids. 
And before you tune him out, just because he's a married dude, he still has things to say. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> D- Dean, let's start out by talking about um, that fabulous decade of, I like to say it's primarily the 90s, when purity culture was pretty much in its heyday. Um, you know, anyone who read and many of our Boundless fans did, and we talk about this a lot, whether it's I Kiss Dating Goodbye or, you know, there were certain Christian music artists at the time that were very uh, much in this message. We know the True Love Waits phenomenon was big in that era. So those who are millennials now and then some Gen Zers have gotten the vestiges of this a little bit. Um, you know, we, we know that this was a big part of church culture. So talk to us about what are some of the good things that came out of that era and some of the good intentions and what were some of the misses? Yeah, well, I was raised in the 90s. I was a teenager. I graduated from high school in 1999. So I was right smack in the middle, you know, of all things purity culture. We didn't call it that then. It's been called that in retrospect. Uh, but we more referred to it as true love waits. That was kind of the, the, really the main emphasis. And the good things were, well, as a teenager, it made me have to actually think about issues of sexuality. Like, I, we actually had to think about those kind of things, where a lot of youth group talks over the years never really actually covered that. It was only just sort of the old-fashioned birds and the bees talk you'd have with your parents. Uh, that oftentimes, they're just trying to get through as, as quickly as possible. Uh, but as, uh, as a teenager and coming up in church culture, you didn't hear much about it. So I think it was a good thing that they actually brought this whole idea to our attention. And also, I want to you know be respectful and be thankful for anyone who was pointing people towards abstinence and, and towards uh, sexual purity. I think that's a good thing, so I don't want to just completely rail on whoever was behind that movement. Uh, But the problematic things were, I wish the focus would have been more on God's design, like actually teaching us biblically and theologically why this whole conversation about sex matters in the first place. The focus instead was simply more or less, you don't want to be the person who messes up in your future marriage. (laughs) But you need to save yourself for your future spouse you save yourself, I said in air quotes, that was the terminology they used, because you don't want to be the one on your honeymoon who hadn't done that. We were actually told those kind of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that created really two different camps, really kind of two sides of the same coin. And one is uh, really Pharisees, which are unavoidable. And these were folks that thought since they had, again, saved themselves uh, for their honeymoon, they deserved someone who had done the same. And if someone had not done that, then they were disqualified uh, from maybe being what they would call marriage material. Uh, and that really, I know people that actually operated and thought that way. Uh, and then on the other side of that would be people uh, who, again, why I say two sides of the same coin is they're both not of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the second thing is those who just had a tremendous amount of shame and guilt. Uh, you would hear uh, phrases used like damaged goods, and I've disqualified myself, and now I don't deserve to be married. And uh, because somebody, and maybe be, well, you know, had an intimate relationship with their uh, boyfriend or girlfriend in high school or college, whatever it might have been. And how sad is that, that both of those results are nothing to do with the gospel. Uh, and so I just wish looking back now, I couldn't have articulated that when I was 15, but looking back now, I just wish the emphasis would have been the why. Like, here's what God has given us. Here's his gift. Here's the purpose behind it. Here's why it matters throughout God's story, rather than simply, hey, you know, Dean, you don't want to be the one who messes up sign this car to make a pledge and, and kind of go and, and make sure you don't do that until then. And again, I just, I'm thankful for pointing people towards abstinence, but 
the whole point of the scriptures is not, is not abstinence, it's God's design. That's the bigger idea. So yeah. that's kind of my pros and, and, and negatives about that movement. Yeah, well, and it's interesting you mentioned that, you know, the fact that we want to be respectful, certainly, of the intent, and the fact that the Bible does have a lot to say about sexuality and the boundaries of sex and what that looks like. Um, but I feel like almost because the purity movement or purity culture and rings and all that have become somewhat of a punchline. Now the church and a lot of Christian leadership has done kind of an overcorrection on that front to the point where, I mean, I was asking my, uh, someone, a few of my friends at church uh, a couple weeks ago, like what, when was the last time we actually heard like porn talked about in church or the conversation continuing because I feel like there's almost a fear to go there now to be labeled as something. So have you seen this play out in churches today? And and what do you feel like are some of the ramifications of being silent on the issue? Oh, I've definitely seen that. One of the reasons I wrote the book was to ask the question, okay, since let's just say everything that we criticize purity culture for is accurate and 100% true, like all of our claims and all of our angst is spot on. Does that change the fact for even a moment that God has a design for sexuality? Mm-hmm. Not, not at all. Mm-hmm. So, so missteps from other believers in the past doesn't change the scriptures. Uh, so uh, just because somebody you know, moves to a big city and gets in their eyes, gets more enlightened and reads The Atlantic and The New Yorker or whatever it could be, does not mean that they know more than God knows about this and who has created this. And I think that's one of the big problems we have is I know the old phrase, uh, throw the baby out of the bathwater is an overused cliche. That's sort of what's happened here as a pushback to purity culture. Instead, people have either abandoned or compromised or become silent, kind of one of those three camps, all together. And I'm really concerned about that, because God's design is timeless for us. And we need to make sure we're clear about why he created sex and men and women for his glory, but also for our good. Yeah. Well, there were a couple, uh, several, in fact, lies within the book that you kind of tackle, things that our culture is delivering, things that we're kind of drumming up, um, you know, among dating couples, those especially uh, the folks that are listening right now that that they're hearing constantly that you really uh, take some effort in debunking. And one of them that's pretty common is that we're just expected in this day and age to be having sex. And, you know, we've we've seen the studies, there are so many studies out about like, oh, well, you know, sexual activity in the church parallels that just in the culture at large. And, uh, you know, why not? And you got to try before you buy and all this kind of stuff. What, you know, talk to us about that as a lie. And really, how does a Christian young adult enter into the conversation on this, when everyone is just like rolling their eyes and saying, look, does does it even matter? I mean, hello, grace, God's going to forgive anyway. So let's just, you know, do what we want to do and worry about the consequences later. Yeah, it almost seems like what used to be the first kiss is now sleeping together, right? Mm-hmm. It's almost like an expectation that when you agree to go on a date with somebody, that a second or third date is probably going to mean you're going home with that person. And it's just kind of part of the dating culture currently. I live in a, a town that's a capital city, university, a lot of young adults, a lot of successful people that have nightlife and go do things and meet their friends. And uh, and really, this is just kind of part of the social makeup of their community is this whole idea of, uh, of sex. And uh, we need to be really careful because the scriptures are very concerned about it. 
uh, because God really cares for our souls. It really cares for us as people. Uh, when Paul is talking to the, the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, they had gotten themselves uh, involved in temple prostitution, like as professing Christians. And Paul doesn't give them this lecture about why they shouldn't do prostitution because it's, you know, maybe dangerous or it's demeaning or any other example he could have given. Instead, he says to them, hey, don't you know, don't you remember that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female? And then he says, and here's the deal. He says, when you lie with that person, you become one flesh with that person. And God cares a lot about this. In other words, God does not want us to do permanent things with temporary people. Now, the one flesh union is definitely more than sex, but it's not less than that. So the attitude we're having towards it, if we're just kind of flipping or, hey, as long as it's consensual, as long as you're careful, uh, that is not how God views it. God views it as this precious gift that's not to be taken outside of its context, which is a man and a woman who are married to each other. And and I I don't mean this, so please, to our listeners, please, please don't see this as arrogant when I ask this question. It really is something I think we need to ask. And that question is, how is the sexual revolution working for us? I mean, how's it working for you? I mean, look at how much brokenness we have. Look at how much regret and pain and abuse and anything time that sexuality is taken outside of God's design, it's going to leave a wreckage. And we've seen that. And sadly, the wreckage is people made in the image of God who Jesus loves. Like our, our brothers and sisters are, are people who have been left in the wreckage of all of this. Uh, so God's not withholding something from us. He really has designed this for his glory and for our good. And when we step outside of it, it should be broken. Like, it should cause the hurt and the pain, because we're taking something God designed and putting it somewhere completely different than where it was supposed to be. So it's the only logical conclusion is that it turned out that way. But the good news is we can recover and pursue God's design. Uh, there is not one person listening to this conversation who is who's got, who God is done with, who is damaged goods, I hate that phrase, uh, you know, who is lesser uh, because of past sexual experiences. And we need to believe that together, that Jesus died for us, and that uh, we can recover and pursue by His grace what He has has given us. It's not too late to do that. Yeah, I think it's so helpful, too. I'm always encouraging young adults to go out and and talk to couples, you know, in their 50s, 60s, 70s. Never once have I talked to uh, an adult, a Christian adult, kind of in that generation who said, you know, the one thing I wish is that I'd had more sex with more sexual partners. No one ever says that. <laughs> they always express exactly. like, no, I wish I wish I would have trusted God. I wish I would have done this or done that. And again, you know, recognizing that God's grace is there, but he also, his goodness um, and his spirit allows us to walk, you know, in truth and and do that, especially in the context of Christian community. Um, yeah. Well, I want to I want to bring up, because you alluded to it, the whole idea of, of marriage, and that's kind of one of the other lies that you uh, tackle within the book, this idea of marriage being a capstone, not a cornerstone. And I feel like at Boundless here, we're one of like four and a half people in the world actually saying that marriage is a good thing uh, to young adults and and saying, you know, it's a great thing to pursue. It's a great thing to pray for. It's a great thing to to date and say, I'm going to I'm going to go there. But there is this idea that you have to have your whole life together and all your dreams pursued and you have to live have lived some life before you can get married. And you're saying, uh, no, clearly you're married. You have kids now. You know, you're not like a grandpa. So talk to us a little about that. 
Yeah, I think the idea that, again, you have to accomplish all you want to accomplish first, you know, live as much life and not just live life, live together first for a while, and then make sure you're compatible and everything's okay, you know, finish your degrees, knock out your bucket list, save up enough money, you know, and then once you settle down and all that's out of your system, then I guess, you know, you can settle down and get married if you really want to. Again, that's not God's design. A marriage is what God designed us to build our lives from, not build our lives to. And for those who aren't married listening right now, that does not mean you should go rush tomorrow or feel guilty that you're not married. That's not what I'm talking about. It's that if we're going to be in relationship, like in an actual, like, you know, man and woman serious relationship, it should be leading towards marriage. Because dating is, in our culture, it's how you meet somebody, so it's, it's, it's not a bad thing. But the Bible doesn't talk about dating. It's not a biblical concept. It's a newer idea uh, in terms of history. So what makes that hard is when we didn't, you know, when God doesn't talk about it, then we have to kind of make up the rules. And so this kind of dating, what it's become in our culture, is this kind of quasi-marriage, not the commitment. And we have to make sure we're avoiding that, that it should be leading somewhere. Uh, and that should be towards marriage, because marriage is a design God has given us, not dating. Uh, so just know if you're dating somebody, you're, you're actually technically still single by biblical standards. Uh, you're not bound to that person. Uh, and uh, the commitment there is really kind of a faux commitment, because you're only committed until one of you decides you're not. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no covenant there. So, so I would just say make sure as you get to know someone and maybe you're enjoying someone uh, that it has some real purpose and intentions behind the relationship. And I'm not talking about courting. I'm not asking you to be this whole, like, super spiritual, unrealistic uh, kind of relationship. I'm just saying it actually has a point to it. Mm-hmm. And we're not just doing this thing called dating forever that will get us in trouble down the road. Yeah. <laughs> well, it it seems to me, and I'd love for you to kind of uh, explore this a little bit, this idea in our culture, and, and I feel like it's even started to permeate the church, that, you know, our, our sexuality is the biggest thing about us. Like, this is the thing that defines us. This is, you know, whether it has manifest itself in the uh, LGBTQ conversation, whether it has been around the idea of um, just sexuality in general or, you know, pornography. Um, the practice of sex. It just seems like people are there putting a timeline on it. Like, you know, I've heard people say, like, literally, Lisa, I cannot, you know, see myself at 30 not having had sex yet. Like, it becomes this thing of just like, my life is not complete, or there's no way that I could do this. And I appreciate, I mean, you even uh, go so far, you quote uh, Sam Albury in your book about, you know, a guy who uh, is is single, and we've had him here on the show. This idea of like, you know, singles can be encouraged. You're not just like stunted or sitting around or taking God's leftovers with your singleness or your sexuality. So what encouragement do you have for that individual listening? Yeah, well, you're, you're designed to, as a believer to live for God's glory now, not later. And, and there's not categories for that. There aren't, oh, well, you, God, God isn't thinking, oh, well, you get an exemption clause because of this, and you're fine because this happened. Uh, the reality is that I had the exact same sexual ethics prescribed to me by the Scriptures as a single person listening to this, this conversation does. And that is that God has created sex for, to be between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman who are husband and wife. So that means that I'm bound in a good way by the exact same parameters. Uh, so that means that the only person that the scriptures have permitted for me to be involved with sexually is my wife, not someone else's wife, uh, not somebody who's unmarried, not, not anyone except for that person. And the same would be true if I was single. The only person that I that God has prescribed for me to ever uh, be sexually connected to would be my spouse. You know, that would be in the future. Uh, so I would say for those people in the meantime, uh, sex is not ultimate. Marriage is not 
not ultimate. If marriage was ultimate, then Jesus would have been in big trouble, and Paul would have been considered people who aren't complete, who aren't ultimate. Uh, but just know that God's in this ever-changing culture, this ever-changing world, God's Word remains the same. And we have to actually remind ourselves and believe that our first order of business in life is worship of God, is His glory, and that same exact God also cares about us and is doing this for our good. So then we should remind ourselves over and over about that and give our, be a part of great churches that believe this to be true and that will encourage us along the way uh, in these endeavors. There is no, oh, I'm 30 now, I'm 40 now, therefore I just can't. That, that's just not how it works, uh, because God cares about us too much to let that be the case. Yeah. So I'm going to actually, I want to give you kind of like a a hypothetical example here um, and have you kind of respond as though, you know, you're in the moment. I mean, you're a pastor, obviously, um, pastoring there in Florida in City Church. So say a couple like walks into church and they introduce themselves to you and they're like, hey, you know, hi, Pastor Dean, great sermon. We really want to plug in here. Um, you know, we're we're dating, we're living together now. Um, you know, we can't get married yet. We're going to probably get married in the next three to four years because we have to save a lot of money and stuff. But man, do we really uh, want to be involved in a church and, and plug in here and start serving and whatnot? So you know, just tell us what we should do. Like, what's your, <laughs> what's your conversation? Yeah. Clearly, they've shown their hand. Yeah. Where do you go with that? You described every Sunday, not a hypothetical. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so we have these almost assumed now. Uh, so yeah. again, we want to be heavy grace, and we also want to realize where these people are. They might not be Christians. Mm-hmm. So if they're not Christians, their issue is not they're living together. Their issue is they don't know Jesus. <laughs> you know, so we want to you know figure out where they are spiritually first and how how we can minister to them. If they're professing Christians, then there's some hard questions to have. And uh, we're, we're, there's a reason why we see in the scriptures that uh, people would not the, the man who wouldn't go and sell his stuff when Jesus told him to, what he was saying is, my possessions are more important than following Jesus. So if someone's professing to be a believer in Jesus Christ, a follower of Christ, and they're saying, oh, we live together because it just makes sense or because we're saving money, you're saying that financial stability is more important than sexual immorality. Uh, that it's more important than your witness. It's more important than God's sequence of doing things. And I think we need to have harder discipleship conversations. We can't let this, this idea of this Americanized, Western, watered-down Christianity that allows us to be more rational in terms of the world's uh, ideas uh, than it does for us to be rational regarding what God has told us. So we just walk with those people. We're not going to beat them up. We're going to encourage them to, to if they're in, in a serious relationship, to actually pursue marriage sooner, uh, get them some mentors. Start. We want them to be part of our church family, not run them away. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're sitting get them mentors, get people in their lives. We're also going to tell them the truth and lead them through that and encourage them maybe even to move their wedding date up. You know, far too often the wedding is a bigger concern than the marriage. Mm -hmm. All right. So we got to talk about that too, about the idol that wedding culture has become in our world as well. But the big picture idea is we're going to walk with these folks, get them mentors and have conversations about like why this matters and why it's a big deal in their discipleship and their witness for Christ. Yeah. And I feel that's so good because it's like, who wouldn't want to know that? I mean, again, to to think yeah. that people in a church community care enough to speak the truth and to say, we're going to help you through this. We're going to show you the way. I mean, you know, I, I think it's so um, such a cop out, you know, when churches say, well, you know, they're just not there yet. Let's let's enfold them in the life of the church or let's just kind of, you know, loosely saying, tell them what they want to hear. And then maybe later we'll address this. And 
I'm like, no, I mean, at, at its core, this is a trusting God issue. I mean, this is something that, like you said, Dean, is very much a discipleship issue. And um, I think that's really great and really healthy to say, you know, hey, you're in church for a reason. We're going to do this in community and we're all growing in some area of our lives and we're all needing correction in some area. And I think that's so great. Um Though I do think, I, I think it would be very helpful. I've often thought this, like, you know what you should do? You got to mobilize the grandmas. Like grandmas can say things to you <laughs> that, <laughs> That's great. that other people can't say. I mean, my, you know, I remember my mom like saying some stuff like to some of the younger girls in the church. And I was like, whoa, mom, let's, uh, let's keep it, you know, keep it on the down low as far as that. And she would just come out and, you know, I mean, it was, it was pretty hilarious because she, <laughs> could, she could mobilize get away with the a lot. Here there's, we go. <laughs> yeah, there's a special little uh, sexuality ministry for grandmas in churches, I think, that we could really go after. I mean, there's a there's a thing there. So, um, Dean, kind of just in the last minute here or so, give encouragement to the person who's like, well, you know, exactly what you said at the front end of like, you know, using the phrases damaged goods and all that kind of stuff. And they're like, well, you know, two minutes too late. I, uh, you know, I've blown it. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I've slept with my girlfriend. I've done whatever. Um, I don't really know where to go from here. What would be your direction to that person? Yeah, I see in the scriptures in Hebrews where we're told that Jesus is not afraid to call us brother. You know, like if, if God is not ashamed of you, then why are you ashamed of you? Mm-hmm. Right? In Christ, he really does cover a multitude of sins, and that includes you. <laughs> Actually, believe that for yourself, uh, not just other people. And again, I, I said this earlier, but that idea of recovering and pursuing, like that's what a repentant life and a new life looks like. Now you're chasing after God's design in all areas of life. Like that's what you're concerned with now. Uh, so you're, you're, you really are a new creation. That's not just like random empty Bible words. Like they're all for us and they're true. Uh, so I would say that, to, to believe that for yourself and then recover and pursue God's design and believe it actually is good. And I think we have to trust God in that. If he's told us it is good, and if we can believe Jesus, if we can believe the Bible when it tells us that Jesus rose from the grave, (laughs) we can believe the Bible when it tells us how God's created sexuality to be expressed and experienced. Yeah, good thoughts there. Well, folks, we've been talking to Pastor Dean and Sarah, and uh, he is the author of Pure, Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality Isn't Outdated, Irrelevant, or Oppressive. And uh, heads up, we want to make this book available to you for a gift of any amount to Boundless. If you go to boundless.org, just search for 759. That's this week's episode. You'll see the book cover there. Just click on it. You can give a gift in any amount to Boundless for the work that we're already doing, and we will send you a copy of Dean's book as our thank you to you. So again, the book is titled Pure. Go to boundless.org, search for 759. Well, Dean, thank you again so much for being part of this conversation, for penning the book, and most importantly, for doing the weekly, daily, boots-on-the-ground um, ministry that you do as a pastor um, in in the space and the faces of young adults everywhere. We sure appreciate you. Oh, thanks so much. I'm grateful for Boundless. Please uh, stay at it. We need you all. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen but i understand that you cannot comprehend how i will put faith in something i can't see 
think about it. You breathe in, you breathe out. That's air, it's no doubt. In and out of your mouth, you can't see it. I trust what he say. He's not in the grave. Rose on the third day. Best believe it. It might take some time for you to change your mind. You might be on your deathbed. Might be on your last day. And you will ask the question, how did I get here? Where am I going when my heart stops? But you should figure that out way before then. Time is your enemy and death is his friend. And you can live your best life right here, right now. Fall into the arms of your father and he'll show you how. Well, hey, everyone. We are here for the inbox portion of our show, and we get to welcome one of our fantastic counselors, M.T. Wilson. Hey, M.T. Hello. How are you? <laughs> well, it is. I'm doing OK, and it's always good to hear your voice um, and get one of our counselors on a call or on this segment yeah. because we have so many listener questions, and you have the opportunity to answer the one today. And so I'll go ahead and just jump in because they put it in their own words. So... Um, our listener is asking, what's the difference between compromising, yielding, and resolving conflict? Can compromising and yielding be involved in resolving conflict? My boyfriend's concerned that if he yields too often, including after we're married, then it might start to affect him negatively and thus harm our relationship. I'd like to do what's best and help both of us in our relationship. Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. Uh, first of all, I'm going to split this up a little bit. Uh, resolving. Yes, we all desire to resolve conflict. So absolutely, that uh, we want to come to a decision. That's what resolving is, coming to a decision. The other two things I see as more pathways, possible pathways to get there. Okay, so one pathway to resolving is a compromise. When I think of compromise, uh, and listeners may be the same, I think of, okay, you give a little, I give a little, and we, and we get to something in the middle. But a lot of times that leads to something where neither one of us are really all that happy with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that, that may not be our best option, although it's what most people think of when they think of resolving conflict. Yielding is a little different because it depends on how it's being interpreted. So when I first think of yielding, I think of somebody who says, okay, I'm going to give here, but I'm kind of feeling manipulated you know, badgered, forced into this, you know, and I'm kind of just abdicating my personal power and dignity to to just get an answer. That's not healthy. It's not biblical. You know, that I don't think that has a place for it. Now, some people might hear yielding and they might think, okay, I'm going to give here because I'm seeing a bigger cause that's worth fighting for. That might be a little closer in the direction of what we would want to look for. So I'm just going to change the language here a little bit. So compromising is not probably the best thing. Yielding certainly with, you know, feeling like you're being forced to manipulate is not good. But but what if rather than yielding to the other person, we decide that we're both going to yield to God? Hmm. Now, that sounds like a nice church Sunday school answer, but I'm going to try <laughs> to put some feed to it. So what does that even look like? So uh, we have a ministry here at Focus on the Family called Hope Restored, and uh, it's a marriage intensive. And one of the things they do at Hope Restored is they advocate this thing called seven steps to a win-win. And if readers, um, if your listeners want to know more about this, there's a book that's been written by the folks who started it called Nine Lies That Will Destroy Your Marriage and the Truths That Will Save It and Set It Free. And that book is actually a fantastic book for dating and engaged couples to get a biblical view of marriage. But one of the things in here is this thing called the seven steps to a win-win. And even though we don't have time to unpack it, I'm just going to talk about it briefly. 
the first three steps here are very different than what you would see in like, you know, a secular relationship or marriage, because it starts with a thing called the no losers policy. And um, the no losers policy is this thing that says, look, and, you know, whether it's the guy or the girl, you know, something that something like, uh, look, I want to make sure that, you know, I'm not going to accept a solution here unless we both feel really good about it. Like I'm, I want our team to win. And so how you feel is going to matter just as much as how I feel about this decision. What that does is it prioritizes both people as being most important. In other words, no longer is the decision most important. It's the people making the decision that's most important. If we can do that, then the next step, the second step in the seven steps is a heart talk. And again, I don't have time to unpack that, but you know, usually when we make decisions, we're thinking about the data and the, and the circumstances on the surface. And that's what leads to a compromise. Because if, if I don't know the why behind why you even care about this decision, then I, I don't have the ability to advocate for that. I'm only going to advocate for me. And that leads to a compromise. But what if we had a process to be able to get below the surface and listen to each other about what our feelings are about this decision and even more so what our fears might be? about the decision, or what our real desires and longings are beneath that. Hmm. That's where the real richness of a win-win can come from, is that if we have a process that I get to understand that you feel left out in this decision, let's say we're talking about going to Thanksgiving with you know family or whatever uh, as a couple, and, and I know that you feel left out and you want to really feel important, and you find out that I don't feel good enough in making this decision and coming up with a good decision, but I just really want partnership, then we can come up with possibilities that prioritize your feeling important and my desire for partnership. Mm. And so, again, it's, it's unpacked in the book, but if we can have a hard talk that gets us beneath the surface of the data of the decision to be made, then we have the ability to not only know each other better, but the third step of praying for unity, where we can come before God and say, God, we don't have any idea what this decision is going to be. Like, we don't have a clue how we're going to bridge the gap here, but you do. And I even have the ability to pray for my girlfriend, fiance, to say, you know, she really has a fear of being left out and really wants to feel important. And I have this desire, uh, this, this struggle of not feeling good enough, and I just want partnership. God, help us to figure this out. And now... As we move forward in the other steps to, to come up with ideas and brainstorm ideas and evaluate them and ultimately make a decision, the goal here is focused on unity, not the best decision. And the Bible doesn't ever say relationships, including marital relationships, will always make the best decision. Like, that's what you always got to advocate for. It says we need to pray for unity. Mm-hmm. And if we have unity in our relationship we can trust that the God who cares about us is going to help us to be able to make reasonable decisions moving forward. So that, that would be my thought with regard to, you know, how this might look a little bit different for this couple. And um, definitely the, the win-win and the nine lies that will destroy your marriage book might be really helpful for them. Yeah, well, super. Yeah, thanks so much for that insight, MT. And uh, yeah, it's just always good to get that perspective and realize that there's a lot of stuff pre-marriage, you know, there are resources out there for marriage, that pre-marriage can be super helpful as well. And I always like to say, you know, 
Relationship principles, you can take them into a lot of things like your friendships, your relationships with your family. It doesn't just have to yeah. be for, for daters only. So um, awesome. Well, folks, uh, thanks so much for joining us this week for this week's show. If you want to kind of get the roundup every week of what we have going on at Boundless, just go to boundless.org and you just scroll down a little bit and you will see a sign up for our weekly e-newsletter. So we're not going to barrage you with a bunch of stuff, but that's a roundup of everything we have going on at Boundless. There's usually a staff letter from me or, or another staff member, and it's just an opportunity for you to stay in the know. And of course, you can do that via our social as well, like Facebook or Instagram at Boundless Team, either of those. So, all right, folks, I will see you around next week. I'm Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of Boundless.org. Focus on the family. Do you ever wonder what it was like to meet Jesus face to face? The miracles, the teachings, the long-awaited Messiah in the flesh. It's all in a new novel by Focus on the Family called The Chosen, I Have Called You by Name. Based on the hit streaming series, immerse yourself in first century Galilee. Experience the Savior through the eyes of his followers. You'll want to dive deeper into scripture with every page turn. Learn more about The Chosen novel at focusonthefamily.com slash chosen. That's focusonthefamily.com slash chosen.